0: turn back to Ezekiel. That was on page 692. And just before we look at the Scriptures together, I've been asked to say a little bit about uh, the work I'm involved in. So I work for an organization called the Soldiers and Airmen's Scripture Readers Association. It's a mission which will be celebrating its 180th year next year and uh, our mission is very simple we seek to befriend the men and women of the british army and the royal air force in order to introduce them to a practical experience of the christian religion which is a slightly cunning way of saying that we put evangelists amongst the soldiers and air personnel in order that they might hear the good news of jesus christ we've been doing that for as i say 179 years so far uh, why do we need to do it There are chaplains in the military, and we praise God for godly chaplains. But all our men and women have served as members of the Army and the Air Force. So they've all been where the soldiers and air personnel have been. It's a truly incarnational ministry, if I'm allowed to say that. Our men and women stand slightly outside the chain of command, whereas chaplaincy are formally in the chain of command. So anything you reveal to a chaplain is immediately reported up and down the command chain and you appreciate that men and women have all sorts of issues that they wouldn't necessarily wish to have reported up and down the command chain. Also, all our people um, have a credible profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone as the only way of salvation. Um, and uh, it resonates, I suppose, with all that's happened at Manchester and last night at uh, Borough and London Bridge. Our people end up in very dangerous circumstances, doing very unpleasant work, and they desperately need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. They need a strong moral compass to do what's right. When we issue them with live armed weapons and expect them to take life as required, they need to understand what they're doing, and the grounds on which they do it, and how it will be viewed by God. Often these men and women they go into action And it's only afterwards, as they reflect on what they've done, that they begin to wonder about what that means for themselves and their future state. Um, They've developed something now which they're calling moral injury. I hadn't met moral injury before, but I think I understand it. And without wishing to be too graphic, um, those involved in um, operating our drone aircraft, the Reapers and so on, the optics on those platforms are very advanced. And the reality is that when they are ordered to take life, um, they see with uh, tremendous clarity exactly what they have done. Um, Those in the Apache gunships, those gunships also have very advanced optics. And so in the old days, a soldier would fight hand-to-hand combat, and he would be very aware of what he was doing, but he would be very much kill or be killed. Today these people leave their children at home with mummy after breakfast, go into a porter cabin, operate their equipment at distances of thousands of miles, kill people in cold blood at distance, and then come back to put the children to bed. They're finding the tension between what they see themselves doing and the military operations they're involved with while operating from their home base integrated fully with their family and friends, very, very difficult. And the cognitive dissonance that comes out of that, they're terming moral injury. And these young men and women desperately need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, in extreme, they take their own lives, or their lives just fall apart and they suffer very badly from PTSD and so on. So that's some of the work we're involved in. It's some of the reasons why I think it's a very valuable work. I appreciate there will be a whole range of views on whether it's right for us to be involved in military operations and whether a Christian should bear arms. Um, We just distance ourselves from that, frankly, because we just meet the situation as it is. And these people, um, statistically white British service personnel, probably one of the least reached people groups in the world, we seek to minister into that. And I'm very grateful for the prayer support and interest that is shown by the congregation here. Thank you, enough of that. Let's turn to Ezekiel. Very good. So I've spoken with some of you before the service, and uh, you come from a range of situations. On the whole, you seem to be actually in a fairly good place, or at least that's what you told me, and that's great. But, of course, as you go through life, and in terms of our sits in Laban, what it is that you're experiencing in the cultural context of today, there will be a raft of challenges. Um, It's true, I think, that it is more challenging to be a Christian in the UK today than it has been at any time in my life, and probably for some generations, and of course in some of the countries that you come from, the situation is considerably worse. So it's normal for Christians to be in very demanding circumstances, and even if we find ourselves in a relatively comfortable place at the moment, there's certainly no guarantee that will continue. But... However difficult or challenging it is for us. For Ezekiel, things were much blacker. Look at verse 1 of chapter 1. In the 30th year, in the 4th month, on the 5th day of the month, as I was among the exiles by the Chibar Canal. Now, Um, I'm aware that some of you are here um, passing through London on your way to various other places. We have some visitors from Canada here this morning who are very welcome, and I hope you enjoy visiting London. You're here because you want to be here, and of course London is the greatest capital city in the world. Um, Why was Ezekiel next to the Chibar Canal? Was he on holiday? Was he having a nice round-the-world trip? Had he taken a, a career break at age 30 to do it? Absolutely not. He was there as a man who'd been taken by armed force and driven 2,000 miles from his home. Israel, ancient Israel, achieved her greatest extent and fame under King Solomon. A thousand years before Jesus Christ and roughly 300-ish years before the situation we're reading here. When Solomon died, you'll remember that the kingdom splits. His son Rehoboam acted very unwisely, and it ended up with a man called Jeroboam taking 10 of the tribes and being their king. That was the northern tribes, rather confusingly, called Israel, and their capital was in Samaria. And that left just the rump of the tribes in Judah. Now, the north rebelled against God. They had God's word. They had prophets. They knew what God required of them. But they cold-bloodedly refused and chose rather to foreign to follow foreign idols. And so God punished them. And 130 years after Solomon, the northern kingdom fell to Assyria, which was then a superpower in the world, And in 722, Assyria invaded and dispersed the Ten Tribes. And unless you're a British Israelite, which I think unlikely here this morning, if you are, do come and tell me afterwards, the Ten Tribes were lost. They were dispersed throughout the Assyrian Empire and effectively lost. The south rebelled less quickly. But it got caught up in the huge military engagements between the superpowers at the time. There were basically three. You had Egypt, which resurged briefly during this period. You had Assyria, the dominant superpower at the beginning. And then you had Babylon, the emerging superpower. And Israel just happened to be located at the point where all these three clashed. And because of their historical connections with Egypt the Israelites tended to favor the Egyptians, and they would look to the Egyptians for help in the face of impending invasion from elsewhere. So very unwisely, they made a league with the Egyptians. There was a massive battle between Egypt and the forces of Babylon at Cherchemesh, which the Egyptians catastrophically lost, and the Egyptians ran home in massive defeat. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, ruler of Babylon, decided he would punish Judah for part of their action against him by taking 10,000 of Judah's leading citizens into exile. So he, as it were, beheaded the nation in terms of their leadership, political, moral, economic. And so, in 597... 10,000 individuals, including a young man called Ezekiel, were transported 2,000 miles roughly north into Babylon. Sadly, it wouldn't end there. Eleven years later, there would be an uprising in what was left in Judah, and Nebuchadnezzar would flatten the temple and most of the city, and that would be the end of the first temple. So mighty Israel, Israel the darling of the living God, Israel the object lesson of what a nation living in God's place under God's law and serving him would look like, a blessed and privileged people, are instead a devastated and displaced people. Now, I don't know. It might be that there are one or two people here this morning who are refugees, in which case I think you would appreciate something of what Ezekiel is feeling here. Um, In God's goodness, I've never been driven out of my own country, and I'm deeply grateful for that. But for this man, Ezekiel, the fact that he is next to the Chibar Canal, in the heart of the Babylonian Empire, away from the temple away from his own country under the heel of an oppressive idolatrous unsympathetic violent regime means that his circumstances are grim deeply deeply grim babylon uh, was an amazing empire in its day it undertook some huge construction works as, as Joe and I walked through London this morning, we're always amazed to see these huge buildings. You understand we come from the rural provinces, so we're not up to all your stuff. Some of your buildings are just huge. And this Kibar Canal was the Royal Canal. It was a particularly advanced piece of uh, water engineering to allow a large tract of land, which otherwise would have been arid and unproductive, to become fruitful land. And it seems that uh, the area had been depopulated because of conflict between Assyria and Babylon. And so part of the reason that Nebuchadnezzar moved displaced people to this area was to, to re-inhabit it and to provide a workforce for this huge construction of the Royal Canal. We know a little bit about this because of the Murashu Banking Group. Anybody here work for the Murashu Banking Group? I assume they don't exist anymore, but they were the bankers in the area at the time. And excavations have discovered their bank vaults with all their records on clay tablets. So we actually have a fairly good idea of what was happening in this area at the time. It appears the Jews were housed in a small town called Tel Aviv. Um, Tel Aviv from the Hebrew means hill of corn. So they were irrigating this area and making it very productive land. And in 1910... Jews returning from exile to Israel um, decided that they would vote on a name for the new second city in modern Israel, and they voted for the name Tel Aviv. So there you go, a bit of history as well. For Ezekiel, this was a profoundly humiliating national disaster. This was basically the end of Israel as they knew it. And so this man is not enjoying himself on a one-year career break, going around the world. Quite the opposite. This, for Israel, looked like the end. Let me just read you Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? The people were devastated. It looked like all God's promises had fallen. All that he'd said to his people about a promised land, milk and honey, his blessing. Where is it now? Where is it now? And if we can attempt to apply that a little to our circumstance. We, uh, we Brits take some pride in the fact that this is the land of the Puritan revolution. This is the land of the birth of the modern missionary movement. This is the land that flooded the world with Christian literature. This is the land of the first modern megachurch, Spurgeon's Metropolitan Tabernacle. This is the land of a robust theological heritage, second to none in the world. But as we look at the church in the UK today, don't we feel a bit like Ezekiel? Has the glory departed? Are we Ichabod? What is God doing now? Are we like these people? Stuck in a context of of godlessness and humanism and the exalting of man's strength ability. Is that what we've come to? There are parents apparently now who say to their children, I'd like you, these are evangelical believing parents apparently, who say to their children, I'd rather you didn't go to youth group. I'd rather you were very quiet about your faith. Because when you go to school, if you let people know that you're an evangelical Christian, you will be sidelined and marginalized. That's how concerned they are about the public acceptance of their children. Brothers and sisters, that's the state we've come to. When we look at that, do we say, it's all up? What hope is there? But then secondly, look at verse two with me. And I assure you that the final verses happen much more fastly, but look at verse two with me. On the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim, the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans by the Chibar canal. So I've spoken to some of you this morning. I know that one of you is studying. Um, ancient history. I know another of you is a very advanced cabinet maker. I know that one of you does IT. and There's a whole range of skills and abilities here, aren't there? This man was a priest. Ezekiel the priest, verse 3, the son of Buzzy. So we know what his job was going to be from the moment he was born. His parents were saying to him, Ezekiel, They chose that name because it means God strengthens. Ezekiel, when you grow up, you're going to be a priest. You're going to minister in what is one of the greatest wonders of the world. The temple was just extraordinary. I don't know what those of you who are parents have wanted for your children. I'm told very often that ministers want their children to be ministers, if they're men, anyway. In this context. Um, But for Ezekiel, it was all crystal clear. Ezekiel, when you grow up, you're going to have the great privilege and responsibility of ministering as a priest in the house of the living God. There is no greater calling. There is no greater privilege, no greater responsibility. And you know they had to learn how to handle um, chopping up animals and making appropriate sacrifices but they also had to judge a whole raft of issues to do with disease and impurity and moral failings and so on. It was a very complicated task and a chunk of the early part of the Old Testament lays down all their rules and regulations. That's what he was going to do. The early chapters and Numbers seemed to indicate that they would enter an apprenticeship at 25 and then they would start their ministry at age 30. And that is why the Lord Jesus Christ entered his ministry at age 30, because, of course, he was a priest, the great priest. That's what he was going to do. So you go and visit relatives, don't you? And you say to the children, how are you doing at school? They'd love to hear that question. And then you say, and when you grow up, what do you want to be? And, of course, I hated being asked that as a child. I had not a clue what I wanted to be. So you have to come up with something, don't you, that gets everybody's approval. But for Ezekiel, not a problem. Ezekiel, when you grow up, what are you going to be? I'm going to be a priest in the house of the living God. As he got to his early 20s, he'd start his preparation knowing the apprenticeship would begin at age 25. He'd have five years to get it all together. And then when he graduated, he'd be a priest. Amazing privilege. He'd work till 50 if he lived that long and then he'd have an honourable retirement. It was all mapped out for him. Except on his 30th birthday, when he should have been enjoying all the ritual of being inaugurated into the priesthood, he's stuck at the side of a canal in a godless foreign land with hopelessness written everywhere now suppose you'd come to London University, King's College in order to study ancient history and the library burned down and all the cloud evaporated what are you going to do? probably going to have to go and study something else I guess suppose that you're a carpenter And deforestation has wiped out every tree in the world. What are you going to do? you have to move into synthetics or something. What are you going to do if you're a priest and you've been moved 2,000 miles from the only place where you can minister and in another 11 years that place is going to be flattened? What are you doing? What are you doing? What hope has Ezekiel got of any kind of useful ministry? He can't offer sacrifices. He's under the authority of the Babylonians. They aren't allowed their own courts, like the Shire courts, I'm told, a hundred of them operating in London. That was all completely wiped out. This man has nothing of value to offer. His nation's been completely wrecked and ruined. All God's promises appear to have collapsed. And he is the most useless person at the side of the Chibar Canal. He has no skill of any value to anybody. It's going to be a great 30th birthday party, isn't it? This man is in the most deplorable condition, I think, apart from about to lose his life, that I can imagine. It's hopeless. It appears to be Godless purposeless, functionless, valueless. There is nothing here that he can do. Am I allowed to try and apply that a little? We did recently in our church a a series of studies on how to be a Christian in the workplace. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that I was an effective Christian in the workplace, um, but I did at least make my faith sufficiently well known That my annual reports commented extremely negatively on (laughs) this. Perhaps a lack of wisdom on my part. But of the men in the group that we were doing this study with, um, most of them said that in the workplace actually they had made no attempt, no attempt to let people know that they were believers, and they just went to work and did work. One of them was in IT. He said, I go to work, I sit in my cubicle, I type stuff, I program, I send instant messages and at the end of the day I get up, I leave my cubicle and I go home. Another one was a landscape architect. He said, I go to work, the boss is a very scary figure, we try very hard not to get into trouble, we sit at our desks. we do our job, at the end of the day we pack up, we go home. No attempt whatsoever say anything about faith, church, Christ. Now, I don't say that because I I wish to um, blame these individuals, but uh, what they were reflecting to us was that the workplace was an extremely hostile environment, and that they had to be extremely careful, or that's how they perceived it, they had to be extremely careful in what they could and couldn't say. Now, I don't know what it's like where you work whether that's at home with children amongst your neighbors and friends, or whether it's a place of employment and so on. But I doubt very much that people are welcoming you into the office on Monday morning, or your neighbors are inviting you around to have a cup of coffee, and they're saying, please tell me what you believe. Please tell me all about church on Sunday. Please tell me what the sermon is about. Please help me read the scriptures. Please, no, It's not like that at all, is it? For most of us, it's actually a very, very difficult Experience and a real battle. Um, those at university, you've got to be careful. If your CU makes too much noise about the wrong things, then the student union will attempt to get you legally removed. As we work in the military, at the moment the MOD is extremely keen to enforce what they call diversity on everybody. That basically means you've got to encourage people who are gender dysphoric or... Um, Identify in all sorts of different ways. Encourage them in that, and say that's absolutely fine. I think it's right. They're not maltreated because of it, but actually, it's being interpreted as you've got to positively encourage it. So, the army recently had its first female frontline shoulder soldier. Um, his name is Chloe. At the point he identified as a woman, and the army identified him as the first female combat soldier, he had received nothing but counselling. He was an entirely a bloke. But if you said anything to the contrary, that would be grounds for you to be dismissed. So the context we're operating in is in some ways a bit like Ezekiel's. Now, the question in all of this, and I appreciate it's been a very dark picture up until now, the question in all of this is facing all of this, what do you need? What do you need? What do you individually, what do you as a church need? Now, I could say, we need to really encourage one another this morning, so we're all going to have hugs. Would that go down well here? No, okay, I'm getting very unpleasant faces from the front end. That would not go down well. i say, right, we're all going to line up on two rows, and we're going to hug, and we're going to encourage each other to snap each other on the back. Or, let's really affirm one another. Let's find something good that each of us have done this week, and you share it with your neighbor, and your neighbour's going to say, that's fantastic, well done, Bill. You're a great boy, Bill. I think you're fantastic. Or let's share with one another our testimonies. That wouldn't be a bad thing to do, would it? So let's get together in small groups afterwards, and we'll share one another's testimonies and encourage one another and say, God is good, and he's given me this, and it's been grace, and all the rest. Or I could say, what God wants for you is health and wealth and prosperity. And I'm going to abuse scripture and preach a sermon all about, if you claim it, he'll give it to you and it'll be great and your career's going to be stellar and you're going to get a first in your degree and all the rest of it, and fill you with nonsense. Is that what we need? What do we need? What did Ezekiel, in his desperate circumstances, need. And thankfully we don't have to guess, do we? Here it is. He sees what looks like a storm. That's not unusual in that part of the world. Um, Sandstorms can be extraordinary. They can last for days. Um, fantastic thunder and lightning you can have. These storms can be hugely impressive. So verse 4, as I look, behold, a stormy wind came out of the north, and a great cloud with brightness. Uh, so far that sounds fairly routine. It starts to get very unroutine. Fire flashing forth continually in the midst of it, of the fire, as it were gleaming metal. This is now quite unusual, not the normal storm at all. And then, verse 5, from the midst of it, the likeness of four living creatures. Uh, we find in chapter 10 these are cherubim. They're creatures that God created to guard his throne. In Revelation 4, we met them again, guarding the throne. And they're extraordinary. Got all the various things that are talked about here, flaming fire, hands, wings, um, this extraordinary mobility. It's, uh, we're beginning to get the concept, aren't we, of some kind of construction here? So this storm, as it gets closer and closer, you can see creatures in it and a structure and it's amazing why a lion an ox, a man and an eagle um, the suggestion is um, that uh, the lion is the king of the wild creatures, an ox is the strongest of the domesticated creatures, the eagle is the greatest of the flying creatures and man is the pinnacle of God's creation, so these cherubim represent the greatest In all the created spheres. And then wherever they go, they move extraordinarily quickly. This apparition comes very quickly out of the desert. They don't have to turn. They can move in all ways, however they want. Get this extraordinary wheel within a wheel. That's actually where we get the British expression from, from the Hebrew in Ezekiel here. Of the wheels, it says, and to the wheels, um, height to them and fear to them. These wheels were extraordinary, and they're covered with eyes. They can see everything that's going on, reflected again in, uh, in Revelation 4. This thing, it can move extremely quickly anywhere it wants to go. It can see whatever it wants to see. It's incredibly noisy. It's like an army, the tumult of an army preparing for action. It can go along. It can go up and down. It's extraordinary. For Ezekiel, this is remarkable. He's never seen anything like this in his life. It's unique. But as it gets closer, verse 22, something more remarkable. Over the heads of the living creatures was the likeness of an expanse, shining like awe-inspiring crystals spread out above their heads, it's as if they're supporting this huge platform, sort of semi-transparent platform. It's awe-inspiring. Never seen anything like this in his life. They're there underneath and spread out and as they go, it's amazing sound. And then extraordinary, verse 25, there's a voice, a voice from above the expanse. When they stood still, they let down their wings. And then it's close now and it's still. And in verse 26, Ezekiel can see, he can see that through this transparent expanse, there's the likeness of a throne. It's a blue throne, it's sapphire colored. And then amazingly on this throne, if one might say, in the living seats of this amazing apparition, it's the likeness of a human. An amazing human, a human who burns, a human who shines extraordinarily brightly, a human surrounded by rainbows, the bows in the cloud on the day of rain. And such was the appearance of the likeness of what? What is Ezekiel seeing? What is happening? What is the point of this vision It's interesting, isn't it? The appearance of the likeness of the uh, the Hebrew is is very abrupt and interrupted, and Ezekiel's struggling to put into words the reality of what he's seeing, and eventually he comes to this conclusion in the second half of verse twenty-eight. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory. Of the Lord. Has he seen God? Well, he doesn't want to say that. Whatever he's seen, it's the appearance of a likeness of. And he doesn't want to say he's seen God because no man has seen God at any time and lived. But it's like the appearance of the glory of the Lord. And when he sees this, he falls on his face. And then there's a great commissioning. Who does he see? Who's on the throne? Who can go anywhere he desires? Who sees all things? Who comes in the picture here of judgment, the fire, the lightning, the burning? Who is it? Who is this? Uh, Brothers and sisters, I think that the huge encouragement here is here is Jesus Christ. Who could help Ezekiel? What did Ezekiel need? What was the answer to the hopelessness of his circumstances? And The answer is Jesus Christ. Let me read you the first few verses from Hebrews 1. Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, which He he's going to do through Ezekiel. For nearly 30 years, Ezekiel is going to have the most brutal, awful um, work of prophesying to a rebellious people. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. What do you and I need? In the challenges of our life, in the difficulties of our context, in the hurt and the pain, in the defeat, in the godlessness that surrounds us, what do we need? Brothers and sisters, you need a clear view of the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he alone, is our hope. He reigns. He rules. He is all-powerful. The glories of this extraordinary vision that Ezekiel had point us clearly to truths about the Lord Jesus in his omniscience, in his omnipotence, in his omnipresence, and in the fact that when he comes again, he will come to judge, and the world will be filled with righteousness. So however awful your experiences are, however challenging your times become, brothers and sisters, look to the Lord Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of your faith. Look to Jesus as you run this race, looking fixedly unto him. And in Christ, you will have all that you need for life and for eternity.